All right, so last week we began uh, to study this great chapter, John 17. Uh, it's normally referred to as the high priestly prayer of Christ. And last week we said that probably a better title for this is simply Christ's closing prayer. We're going to see this morning Christ is presented as a priest, as a high priest. Um, but I think Christ's closing prayer is, is, is more broad. It captures everything that's going on in this, in this passage. This prayer concludes the farewell discourse. It, it summarizes it. It restates much of what Christ taught through the upper room. His prayer in this chapter is meant to secure and make certain all that he taught and all that he promised his disciples in chapters 13 to 16. And so this, this prayer extends the, the whole of chapter, chapter 17. And we can divide the prayer up into two parts. Verses 1 through 5 is Christ's prayer for himself. And then verses 6 through 26 is Christ's prayer for his disciples. And last week we looked at the first part, verses 1 through 5, Christ's prayer for himself. And in those verses we learn that it was the Father's purpose from eternity that the Son would possess all authority for the giving of eternal life to God's elect people through the accomplishment of redemption on the cross. Now, there's a lot packed into that, to that statement. So what I want to do this morning before we dive into our next text is unpack that just a little bit by way of review, some major points we saw last week um, to, to get us going here. The first thing that we learned last week that was packed into those first five verses is that the Father has given a people to the Son. We've learned about this people really throughout the Gospel of John. They've come up over and over again. And we're going to continue to learn about these people in chapter 17. This is none other than the new covenant, the people of God. Believers, disciples, you. It's the people that God has chosen to be his ultimate and final covenant community. Those whom the Father has from eternity determined to redeem. So this is the first important thing to recognize in this text. The Father has a people he's given to the Son. And we're going to develop that point a little bit more this morning. We're going to see these people again. The next important thing to emphasize is that the Father gave this people to the Son for the Son to do something for them. Well, what is that? Father gave his people for the Son to give them eternal life. That is to bring them into the full experience of salvation, not just forgiveness of sins, but the culmination of eternal life, which is nothing other than knowledge of God. This is eternal life that they might know you. It's the very essence of eternal life. So it's the Father's purpose, and therefore Christ's purpose, to give eternal life to each and every one of these the Father gave to him. Okay, you can see that in verse 2. But that leads to the next important point. That's Christ's cross was the means whereby he would have authority to give eternal life. So the Son came with the purpose of giving eternal life to all those the Father gave to him. And the way the Son would do that would be as he came to have all authority through his cross, what he accomplished on the cross. 
In other words, this passage is telling us that Christ died on the cross with the intention of accomplishing all that was needed to give eternal life to a specific group of people. Again, very clear in verse 2. Christ's death on the cross was particular in its intent. It had a particular aim. It was not aimed at a general, non-specific group of people out there, but for a specific group the Father had given to him. And that leads to point number four, is that Christ, through the, his death on the cross, secured and guaranteed and made certain the eternal life of all those given to him by the Father. Christ did not just die with the intention of giving these people eternal life, but his death made certain their eternal life. In other words, Christ did not accomplish and guarantee, if Christ did not accomplish and guarantee the eternal life of those he was intending to guarantee their eternal life, those the Father gave him to give eternal life to, if Christ didn't accomplish that and guarantee that, then he was a failure. He meant to give them eternal life. God the Father gave this people for him to give eternal life to through his cross. He was supposed to. But they didn't all come to possess eternal life. If that's the case, then Christ failed in his mission. In other words, Christ's death on the cross was particular in its aim, and it was effective in what it accomplished. He died for those the Father gave him, and he ensured their eternal life through his cross. Christ's death guaranteed the salvation of every single one of those the Father gave to him. In other words, Christ's death was not a vague, general atonement that's intending to save all people, but only saves a few. That's not the case with Christ's atonement. It saves all that it was intending to save. It guarantees the salvation of all those that the Father had given to him. His death wasn't weak, but powerful. It accomplished more than just satisfaction for sin. His death secured and guaranteed the eternal life from regeneration to glorification of every single one of those the Father gave to him to redeem. And so this closing prayer of Christ rings with this note of triumph and victory. This is not the prayer of a defeated man. This is a prayer of a victorious king. And we heard that note of triumph at the end of chapter 16 where Christ says, I have conquered the world. I've overcome the world. And we're going to hear this note of triumph reverberate throughout this prayer this morning. In his cross, Christ triumphed as he accomplished all the Father's plans of redemption, made complete atonement for sin, and guaranteed the eternal life of every single one of those the Father gave him to redeem. If he lost one, if one of those that he intended to die for and ensure their eternal life, if one was lost, then he was a failure. But the evidence that he is not a failure and the evidence that all of God's own will be saved and the Father's plans were secured is seen in number five. The Father glorified Christ 
in his ascension to heavenly glory. Christ's ascension was the Father's stamp of approval on Christ's work. It was proof that Christ did indeed triumph. It was the guarantee that he accomplished and secured the salvation of each and every one of those God had given to him. So it's important to note here in these five verses that we saw last week is Jesus is not merely teaching. What is he doing? He is praying. He is expressing his final submission to the Father, his final submission to the Father's plans. He is requesting that the cross take place and that it accomplish all the Father intended it to accomplish. He is requesting the Father to accept his cross work. He's requesting his return to glory and the Father's stamp of approval on him. So that's what we saw last week in Christ's prayer for himself in verses 1 through 5. Now I realize that what I just explained and summarized for you in those five verses are not only controversial, but they're difficult to get your arms around and and understand. Um, So my plan is to come back to this topic in, in a future lesson or two. Um, and address this doctrine. It's often known as the doctrine of limited atonement, or a better definition is definite atonement, particular redemption. Um, And I want to come back to this topic uh, in the near future because of how clear it is in this passage, and also how important this doctrine is, how often it is ignored and denied, or at least belittle, that's not that important. I want to bring us to it and, and help explain it and answer some of your questions about it. And um, hopefully we can work to some, some clarity together. So just know uh, we're going to come back to this and, uh, and flesh it out a bit more. But I want to keep going a little bit further in John 17 to get some more data under our belts, to do some more exposition on these verses um, before we can piece things together theologically and... Uh, and answer some important questions. So hold your questions, write them down, be thinking about them, and, uh, and we will come back. Well, with that, let's, let's shift gears now, and we're going to look at the second section of this prayer this morning. It's by far the longer of the, of the two parts. You can see here Christ's prayer for himself is in verses 1 through 5, and then in the remaining 21 verses, Christ prays for his disciples, and that's the section we're going to begin this morning. You can see the macro outline on the back of your handout that I gave you. This uh, prayer for his disciples comes in two sections. He prays for his disciples' present need as they remain in the world. That's the majority of the prayer. And then it concludes in verses 24 and 26 with his prayer for his disciples' future glory in heaven. And the prayer for his disciples while they're in the world, verses 6 through 23, breaks down into two parts. His prayer for his current disciples, the apostles, those are who are his disciples through his ministry, and then his prayer for future disciples like you and, and me. And so this morning we're going to begin his prayer for his current disciples, and it begins in verses 6 through 11a with Christ giving the reasons for his prayer. That's what we're going to see this morning. In these verses, he's going to explain why he is praying 
for these disciples. Why he expects the Father to answer his prayer for these disciples. And why he's making these particular requests for his disciples. So we're not going to get any of the requests this morning. That's coming in verse 11. This morning, we're just going to hear the grounds, the basis, the reason for why he prays and why he expects the Father to answer. And it's a glorious, glorious passage. So we've titled this passage, Christ Gives Three Identities of His Disciples, which serve as three reasons for his requests. So the reasons Jesus gives the Father for why the Father should answer him, those reasons are rooted in the very identity of who his disciples are. It's based on the unique identity that Jesus is, the disciples Jesus is praying for. These verses are here, they're meant to give us great confidence in Christ's love for us. They're meant to give us great confidence in his commitment to secure all that we need and to bring us all the way to glory. They're meant to give us great confidence in the certainty that his prayers were indeed answered. So this is all foundation stone we're laying, and it's meant to fill you with confidence as you hear the rest of his prayer. So let's begin here. The first identity that Christ gives as the reason for his prayer is found in verses 6 to 8. Christ prays for his disciples because they are those who have recognized the revelation of the Father in Christ. Look at verse 6. Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words you gave me, and they received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. So there's a lot packed into those those verses. Let's break it down here. First thing we learn is the aim of Christ's ministry. What was the aim of Christ's ministry? Well, he tells us, he says, I have manifested your name. So the aim of Christ's ministry while he was on earth was primarily manifesting, revealing, making known the name of the Father. The Father's name doesn't mean like a name like you have. It means the Father's character, what he's really like. The Father's nature, his being, his holiness, and righteousness, and plans, and purposes, and grace, and wrath, and faithfulness, and love. That was Christ's purpose, to reveal the Father. And this manifesting took place throughout Jesus' earthly ministry. All that he did was for that purpose, and it culminated in the cross. So that's the first thing we can say. The aim of Christ's ministry was to manifest reveal the Father. But who was Christ seeking to manifest the Father to? Primarily. Look what he says. Let's get now the target of his ministry. Look at the verse again, verse 6. Manifest your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. 
So these are the same people we encountered back at verse 2. Look up at verse 2. You have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all you have given to him. Same group of people. And in these verses, Christ says that he came with the intention of giving eternal life and with the intention of revealing, making the Father known to this people in particular. Now, it's true that Christ manifested the Father in all that he did, right? He didn't just sometimes manifest the Father. He didn't do it behind closed doors somewhere. Everybody saw Christ. He manifested the Father in everything that he did. But there were many who failed to see and hear Christ. Well, who are they? Well, they are the world. That's what Jesus has told us over and over again. The world. The world is the darkness-loving system of depraved, blind humanity. And as Christ is manifesting the Father, they're blind to it. They don't see it. They're blind to Christ. But Christ came and aimed at manifesting the Father, not merely to the blind world, but look what he says, to those the Father gave him, where? From out of the world. In other words, these people at one time belonged to the world. You at one time belonged to the blind, rebellious system of the world. But the Father gave them to Christ out of the world. This is very similar to what Jesus said back in chapter 15, verse 19. He said, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, you're not from the world, but I chose you out from the world. So here is Christ choosing his disciples out from the world. So in our passage, the Father gives the Son a people out of the world. In John 15, Christ chooses a people out from the world. Same people. So you see, the world, by nature, is unable to receive Christ. They're unable to see the Father manifested in Christ. And if you need to review that, go back to John 8, where that point was hammered away. So this is important. This tells us that these people that the Father gave the Son did not come to belong to the Father or belong to the Son based on their initial action. Or their response to Christ. So it's not as though the Father's looking and these people are responding to Christ. And he says, okay, I'm going to give you to the Son. That doesn't happen. And that doesn't happen because the world never responds to Christ. These people who belong to the world are unable on their own to see and believe Christ. The Father's gift of this people to the Son had nothing to do with these people had nothing to do with their response or their action. They belonged to the world, Jesus said. So the question is, how and when did they come to belong to the Father and were given to the Son? Well, the answer must be that they belonged to the Father and were given to the Son before Christ's ministry. They belonged to the Father and were given to the Son by virtue of the Father's own choice and free grace. 
So this verse is saying that Christ came with the intention, the target of ensuring that these people would be brought out from the world to a true and certain knowledge of the Father. Now that's very similar to what he said in verse 2. Christ came to give eternal life to his own. What is that? Knowledge of God. This verse, he comes to give revelation of the Father to his own, same people. So that's Christ's target. His aim and his target, but that's not all. Now we get also the success of his ministry. Look at all these people now whom the Father gave to the Son and to whom the Son intended to manifest the Father. Look at how they respond. Verse 6. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. They've kept your word. That is, they've responded with true and real faith in all that you revealed through me. So Christ manifested the Father's name to every single one of those given to him, and every single one of those given to him responded by keeping it. True faith. So this is now the human side of the equation. As a believer, you really did make a choice, didn't you? You really did express your will and believe in Christ. That's what these disciples did, and Jesus is not denying that. Those the Father gave to the Son, whom the Son came to manifest the Father, they are evidenced by their response. That's why it's wrong to think, as some people do, who are genuine believers, who trust Christ, that, man, what if God didn't choose me? What if I'm not really part of that group that he gave to the Son? That doesn't work, because the point Jesus is making is that your very faith is evidence that you are the ones that he gave to the Son. The world does not do that. You are evidence, his people that the Father gave to the Son are revealed in time, space, and history as they respond to Christ and they come out of the world by faith in Christ. So your response doesn't make you a part of Christ's flock. Christ being a part of Christ's flock enables your response. Go to chapter 10, if you would, really quickly. Jesus says this very thing. I'll say that again. Your response doesn't make you a part of Christ's chosen flock. But being a part of his chosen flock enables you to believe and respond. Look at verse 25. He's talking to the Pharisees and they're rejecting him. And he said, I told you and you do not believe. The works I do in my father's name bear witness about me. There he is manifesting the father. Look at this, verse 26. But you do not believe. Why? Because you are not part of my flock. He does not say, you are not part of my flock because you do not believe. That's not what he said. He said, you do not believe because you're not part of my chosen flock that the Father has given to me. In other words, Christ's chosen flock is made visible and evident as people respond. That's the only reason the world would come out from being the world. 
But just what do disciples do? Go back to chapter 17 now. What do true disciples believe about about Christ? What does this look like? They've kept your word. Well, he explains it. He unpacks it a bit in verses 7 through through 8. Let's look at these quickly. Look at verse 7. He says, Now they know that everything that you've given me is from you. What does that mean? It sounds sort of repetitive. Everything you've given me is, is from you. Um, I like the, the NLT. It's pretty helpful how it paraphrases it. It says, now they know that everything that I have is a gift from you. That's the fourth thing now that Jesus says the Father has given to him. The Father gave him authority. The Father gave him a people. The Father gave him work. And now Jesus says the Father's given me everything that I have. And a disciple recognizes Christ as the one who perfectly represents the Father. They see and hear the Father in Christ. But how? How have disciples made that connection between Christ and the Father primarily? Look at verse 8. For I have given them your words, the words that you gave me. And they've received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they believe that you sent me. It's primarily through Christ's words. And this is the fifth thing the Father's given to Christ. The Father has given Christ words to speak. And Jesus has given these same words to disciples. And, and look how they respond, these, these terms for faith. They've received it. They've come to know in truth, or literally they, 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 they have known for certain, and they have believed that you sent me. This is what sets disciples apart from the world. And while at this point, Christ's disciples, they don't have the full-orbed faith, right? They don't quite understand the cross and the resurrection, but their responses to Christ have been infinitely better than the world's responses. They have connected Christ through his words to the Father, and that is the same thing that distinguishes you and me as true disciples apart from the word. Look at what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2. This is what disciples do. Where are Christ's words now? You don't go outside to try to hear Christ's words. Where are they? They're in the scriptures as the apostles have recorded them. And what do disciples do? We thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, Paul is preaching the word of God, you accepted it. You received it. You welcomed it in. Not as the word of men. But as it really is, the word of God. You do the same thing. You hear the word of Christ in scripture, passed on by the apostles, and you say that is the word of the living God. That is the essence of a disciple, Christ says in our passage. So that's how Christ begins this prayer for his disciples with an overview of the complete success of his ministry. All those the Father gave to him have responded. He's manifested the Father to all those the Father gave to him. And he's saying something like this, Father, I'm about to make requests for my disciples and I'm asking you to grant those requests because these people are none other than the people that you gave me from the world. And this is evident from the very fact that they have believed in my words. I've successfully made you known to them and now I am committing them into your care. So that's the first rock-solid ground of Christ's prayer 
for his disciples. But before he makes the requests, he gives another identity of his people and another reason for his requests. In verses 9 through 10, Christ prays for his disciples because they are distinct from the world and ultimately belong to the Father. Look at verse 9. He says, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you gave me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. So Jesus says, I am praying for them, or better, I am making requests on their behalf. I am asking things for them. So this is where Christ is acting like a high priest. High priest did two things. They made atonement for sin, and they prayed for the covenant people. That's what Christ is doing. He's praying for you, securing all the benefits of the covenant for you in his prayer. He's acting like a priest here. But before he makes these requests, he again clarifies just who it is he's praying and why he expects the Father to answer. Well, why? Well, first, it's because his disciples are distinct from the world. Look what he says. I am praying for them, the group that he's just described in verses 6 to 8. But just so we wouldn't miss his point, look what he says. I am not praying for the world. The world being the sinful, rebellious system of humanity. None of Christ's requests can apply to the world so long as it is the world. Christ does not pray for the world because of the identity of the world. There's nothing to pray for. Any request for the eternal well-being of God's enemies while they remain enemies to God is blasphemous and treacherous. Christ instead prays for those who have been brought out from the world to be his people. He's praying for the Father to give them things. So the contrast here between the world and Christ's disciples could not be any sharper. What Christ is going to ask in this prayer is for disciples and not for the world. Now, that being said, we need to remember a couple of things to keep us balanced here. You can go on two extremes, and I want to keep us right in the middle. Number one, we must be careful to remember that it's not as though Christ's requests have nothing to do with the world whatsoever. Christ, after all, loves the world. God so loved the world. Again, meaning God's demonstrated his supreme love for this rebellious system of humanity by sending his son. So this doesn't mean he doesn't care for the world whatsoever. Rather, his prayer for disciples will in part be for the sake of the world. That the world might cease to be the world. And turn and become part of his people by faith. So long as the world is the world, there is no hope. But Christ prays for us, his people, for the hope of the world will be you and I. That's why he prays for you. It's for the good of the world. So Christ's prayer here for his disciples, not for the world, is for the good of the world. And that should guard us. 
from any attitude of elitism, superiority, arrogance, pride, hunkering down in our safe little bubble as God's chosen ones? No. Christ's prayer for you is for the sake of the world, in part. But number two, we must also be careful not to flatten everything out such that Christ's love for the world is indistinguishable from his love for his own. He has a unique, particular love for his people. He has an affection, a concern for those that the Father has given him from the world. Christ's love for you is not vague and foggy and general, but powerful and specific and unique and different from his love for the world. So he prays for you. He prays for his disciples and not for the world. And that brings us to the next point here. His disciples are also of utmost concern to the Father. His words here explain not only who it is he prays for, but why the Father should answer. And we can see this in two brief points. They ultimately belong to the Father, and they honor the Son, which is the Father's Father's aim. So look at the rest of verse 9. I'm praying for those you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I am glorified them just highlight here what what christ says he says all i have is yours and all you have is mine everything that belongs to the father belongs to christ that is an astonishing claim to deity right there only god could say something like that and because that's true that means you ultimately belong to the father if you belong to christ it means you ultimately belong to the father and therefore you're of great care to the father and by faith, you also honor the Son. And that's what Christ's, God's aim is. And all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. So these are Christ's grounds. This is why the Father should answer. They belong to the Father. You belong to the Father. You honor the Son and your faith of Christ. And all of those things matter to the Father. Well, we're almost done. Before Jesus begins to make his request, he gives a third reason. And a third significant identity of his disciples. Christ prays for his disciples because they are those who have been left behind in the world. Look at the first half of verse 11. It says, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Disciples have not only been chosen And brought out from the world, but as Christ returns to the Father in glory, disciples will be left in this world. So think of it like this way. Those who have come out of the world to happily submit to the king whom they were once in rebellion with, who once they were in league with the world in rebellion against, once they come out of the world that the world is still in rebellion against, they can be sure that they will stand at odds with the world. And the world will treat them as traitors to their rebellious kingdom. 
So while Christ's ascension will mean his glory and the accomplishment of all the Father's purposes and the securing of your eternal life, it will also mean that you will be left in the world to which you do not now belong, which you've been chosen out of, which now hates you for your treason to its rebellious kingdom. And that's why Christ is praying. That's why he's going to pray the requests that he does. But he's prayed for you. He's already prayed for you as your great high priest. And his prayers, as we've seen this morning, are in perfect alignment with the Father's will. And they most certainly will be answered. He's provided everything for his people, secured in the cross and secured in his prayer. Guaranteed. Everything you need. This morning we've seen how he's grounded his requests. How he's appealed to the Father. He's pointed to our eternally belonging to the Father. Our gift to the Son. Our distinction from the world. The way we've honored the Son And the way the Son has loved and prayed for us. And all that's foundation. And it tells us that everything he's going to pray in the rest of this prayer is absolutely guaranteed. So what does all this mean for us? There's a lot of theology we talked about this morning, a lot of doctrine. How should that affect our lives as we go from here? Let me give you two ways. Number one. Such truths should fill us with gratitude and strong faith in God's love for us. That is the fundamental reason why you have been brought out of the world. Underneath everything else is the Father who gave you to the Son. The very fact that you're believing is evidence of that. That reality of God's special particular love for us must be remembered. It must be called to mind and lived in light of. We're so quick to doubt it. Some circumstance happens in our life and what is the first thing we do but question his care and his commitment and his love to us. And this passage is showing us how ridiculous, how blasphemous almost such a response is. D.A. Carson put it this way. He said, When the Son of God himself has offered prayers for his followers like these prayers, and when the prayers have been grounded as these prayers have been grounded, it is horrifying to remember that in moments of weakness and doubt, we still rebelliously question the love of God for his own people. This passage ought rather to engender the deepest and most stable faith the most adoring gratitude. The disciples of Jesus Christ are loved with a special love that distinguishes them from the world. You need to know how you've been loved. He's not just loved you in a general foggy way. He's loved you to the uttermost. Done everything from eternity past to guarantee your eternity future. All by grace, all by love. Know that. Number two. Such truths as these should cause us to be filled with confidence in the certainty of Christ's prayers and the certainty of his victory and success in keeping all of his own. He didn't only succeed in his earthly ministry, he succeeded as he prayed that you would persevere all the way to the end. And Christ's prayers are 
always answered. These verses are meant to cause us to be confident that Christ never fails, to be the rock-solid foundation with which we enter into that hostile world as his disciples. The world may call him a failure, it may reject him, but these verses declare that Christ triumphed. Perfectly accomplished redemption through his cross and through his prayer. And that's an incentive to believe in Christ. And that's an incentive to keep on believing in him. You don't thwart his mission if you reject him. And if you receive him as Lord in Christ, you can be com- confident that he will bring you all the way home. So that's how Christ grounds his, his prayers. And in the weeks ahead, we'll now unpack just what are those prayers he makes for his disciples and why that's good news, good news for us. We have one minute before we're done. Any, any questions or comments on, on all that we said this morning? <clears throat> All right, let me pray. Gracious Father, we thank you. We confess our slowness to believe, our slowness to feel and be moved by and trust, be gripped by the magnitude of your love, particular love for us, Father, the confidence that we easily neglect as we forget Christ is the victorious Messiah who's not just accomplished part of your plans or merely made them possible, but secured them, guaranteed the eternal life of everyone of his own. And we can know we belong to that group because we believe. It's the only reason we believe is your sovereign grace. Father, I ask that you take these truths and root them deep in our hearts that we would be a people strengthened by grace, confident in the love of Christ, humble, going to the world with hope and a glorious message of grace. Father, we love you. I thank you for Christ. I thank you for your word. Bless us now, we pray in Jesus' name.